Today, on August 15, 2020, I stand before you as the first candidate for Vice President of the United States of South Asian descent. When my mother, Shamala, stepped off the plane in California at 19 years old, she didn't have much in the way of belongings. But she carried with her lessons from back home, including ones she'd learned from her parents, my grandmother, Rajam, and her father, my grandfather, P.V. Gopalan. They taught her that when you see injustice in the world, you have an obligation to do something about it, which is what inspired my mother to march and shout on the streets of Oakland at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, a movement whose leaders, including Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., were themselves inspired by the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi. And it was during those protests that my mother met my father. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> Gone Wild, a new Waste Fellow series covering all kinds of diaspora hijinks, the crass, the corny, and the criminal. Each episode will cover an outrageous saga in the history of the South Asian diaspora, offering us a whole new perspective on the ever-expanding frontiers of Desi influence and the journeys our Pardesi brothers and sisters have charted for themselves. So remember, the next time you come across something dumb and Desi, Make sure you let Waste Fellows know, and it might end up on Diaspora Gone Wild. Do you hear about the craze sweeping Chennai to LA? Cobra, 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 Cobra. Do you want to do this dance? I can put you in a trance. Cobra, 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 Cobra. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste Fellows. Today, we have Priya, an organizer from Oakland and Chennai, who you might know as the Dialectic Daughter on Twitter. Um, she's here to talk to us for a di- for Diaspora Gone Wild episode um, about Kamala Harris. So welcome, Priya. Hi, everyone. Fellows. Thank you so yeah. much for having me on. I've 
waited for this day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a and, huge and fan. What, and uh, what an opportune moment because um, we're going to be talking about Kamala, um, mm. who is also from Oakland and Chennai. So both of you <laughs> yeah. have that in common. So I think you can yeah. shed more light on why she is the way she is. Yeah, <laughs> I just moved to Oakland, so that side might be a little uh, premature in my analysis. But Chennai definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, what What are your thoughts just upfront on um, sort of the Tamil representation she brings yeah. to the table? Yeah, it's it's so funny because I feel like most of the type of representation that she's tried to milk like amongst the diaspora has been like through food um so she did this really cringy like video with like Mindy Kaling where they Mm -hmm. cook a masala dosa (laughs) um and it's just extremely ridiculous from the the start because um she's just so over enthusiastic about everything and the funniest part is like she comes in in like all these like spice all this masala and like spices they're in like jars and she's like oh my god like my father used to do this like my mother used to do this <laughs> and yeah. it's just like what used to do what like put <laughs> like like haldi in a jar so like I think it's just she's trying so hard to appeal to this diaspora like specifically whatever South Indian population in ways that you know like I think it's funny because um the cringiest of the diaspora they really self-orientalize through food and I think the fact that she's doing the same thing is like hilarious to me (laughs) yeah I think that's such a good point and the reason why I wanted to cover Kamala for diaspora gone wild like specifically Mm-hmm. Um, was because I feel like she makes the diaspora go wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so much her, it's more the reactions that she's eliciting um, from this group of people. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I find really interesting, like how Kamala, who up until this point was not milking her Indian identity as much. I mean, she even identified as African-American in census records, um, mm-hmm. is now sort of suddenly presenting her life story as this, you know, melting pot pot immigrant narrative because of the political mm-hmm. experience of that. Um, so I really just like, I, I love how now that she's leaning into, you know, um, her South Indian identity and talking a lot about her mother's family, um, you mm-hmm. have people from the like the ID politics liberal cohort of the diaspora going crazy um, mm-hmm. over that, um, and I think some of the funniest responses. I mean, one I remember was when she said like the Tamil word for aunts, which is like what ch- <laughs> chittis, like chittis, yeah, <laughs> chittis, yeah. Um, and everyone was talking about how this represents, you know, like till now we've only had, you know, North Indian politicians, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Nikki Haley or Bobby Jindal. Or I don't, I don't, I don't even know, but there's this narrative in the West that North, North Indians and in politics have dominated till now. Now it's time for a South Indian to shine. I don't know who these North mm-hmm. Indian politicians are because <laughs> like Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley will yeah. not even acknowledge that. They're, yeah. <laughs> that, um, Literally. so, so I, yeah, but, um. So now it's time for like, like whatever, like Tamil's, the, the, the Tamil surge in politics. Um, mm-hmm. So she's being framed not just as like Indian against white, but like South Indian um, pride um, as a vehicle yeah. for South Indian pride, um, which I found really funny. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and 
Yeah, there was that ridiculous like Wall Street Journal article about just like such revisionist history about like the Tambram population and how they're extremely like repressed and uh, they had to flee India because of socialism and identity politics and like yeah, just I think it's like through this conduit of like South Indian representation, it's such a glor like glorifying of like Tambram like caste <laughs> supremacy. So yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. And like white people don't know any better because they don't they don't know shit about like caste, you know. <laughs> but it's it's so. similar shit that they 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 they're told about white Cubans as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's I think that they're all these like glorified privileged minorities in their home countries or when they go to America construct these identities of oppression that like appeal to the fault lines of American politics Mm -hmm. so it's really easy to it's really easy to craft that identity for yourself and I feel like the Tamil Brahmin identity is like it it, it feeds into that really well Mm -hmm. um no I'm like I loved that I thought that um it's Sadhanand Hume who's like a popular policy like yeah. right of center policy guy who's kind of been left behind. I feel like a lot of these <laughs> like centrist right centrist slash right people have been left behind because the right has become so extreme that now they're trying mm-hmm. to cobble up any support they can with like the center left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like Dhume's career has been that because he's seen how Modi like first he was like a Modi supporter in 2014 and then he's suddenly like shifted and been like oh like no there are problems with Modi um, and I feel like these center right of people don't have a space anymore in India or America as much because right. yeah. there's no reasonable right to appeal to um, which is why you have like the Barry Weiss like appealing to the New York Times or yeah. like trying to get the New York Times to publish I don't know whatever that's another discussion entirely but Dhume is that one of those characters who's trying to like figure out what his career should be in the face of like mm-hmm. an extremely unreasonable right wing surge across the world um, when his whole thing is like being able to be measured and centrist but anyway right. but, like I love that article because <laughs> there was there was this like he was talking about like the greatness of how Tam Rams raise their kids and I'm like wow this <laughs> only God. sounds appealing to anyone yeah. Who, like this only sounds appealing to Tam Brahms because he's mm-hmm. like, um, oh yeah, like Tamil Brahmins don't let their kids watch TV. They don't let their <laughs> kids listen to music. When you grow up, you have to study 14 hours a yeah. day. You know, there's, an, there's an extreme focus at the age of five on education and getting uh, academic laurels. Yeah. Um, they aren't allowed to be with other children their age, no frivolities, you know. It's just like, and I'm like, wow, like this sounds like kids in my class like my the Tamram people in Mm -hmm. my class competing with one another about who had a worse childhood like this reminds Mm -hmm. me of that because to them like the more repressed their childhood is the more they're going to be successful in the future and that's such a Tamram narrative like literally no one else thinks like that yeah yeah and yeah it's just so ridiculous like I was looking at out of curiosity I was looking at the quote tweets of that article and they're all these like IT men from like Silicon Valley, these Brahmin men who are like, wow, this relates, I relate so much. Like my parents raised me with these tandem ideals and like they all look the same, like the the fucking like IT bro techie. Um, so it's just kind of pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so pathetic. 
Yeah, only Damrams are like proud of having been insufferable yeah. dogs their entire lives. <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and they're just like, yeah, like we didn't play with Barbie dolls growing up. Instead, <laughs> our parents gave us little idols of mathematical genius, Srinivas yeah. Ramanujan. And instead of making them kiss each other, we made them, you know, we bang their brains against each other. <laughs> and now I'm a neurosurgeon in North Carolina. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know, like, they have these really like, bizarre childhood experiences that they try to, like, present as early expressions of their genius or their greatness. Yeah. It's, it's always really funny. I've, like, Tamrams are a really funny group in terms of that. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, like, you know, like, my parents gifted me, like, books to prep for the IIT like during my open eye and I'm, it's just so pathetic and disgusting there's such a joke <laughs> no it totally is um the the tamram thing is definitely like now that kamala represents tamram um superiority and it's something that she refers to a lot in her own narrative obviously not being a tamram mm-hmm. but basically everything associated with being a tamram but i want to get into that a bit later i think first mm-hmm. i just love to go through like the funniest responses the diaspora mm-hmm. has had like um i love this one tweet by wajahat ali who yeah. um is i think like a uh, an american He's- Right. He's another like, New York Times like authored writer. Uh, yeah, um, and he did this tweet that was like that got okay. This tweet got one point five k retweets <laughs> and ten point seven k likes. Um, oh my god! But uh, basically, he said Kamala is going to eat Mike Pence alive. She will stuff him in a dosa and devour him in one bite. Won't even need the chutney and sambar. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's so bizarre, like, these food metaphors. It's just, like, the only thing people can think of. (laughs) And it's just, like, so, it's so funny. It's, like, it's so disgusting and funny. (laughs) But it's also just really funny, the the pandering that we've seen from the Indian media. Like, um, there was this... Uh, article on like new in News 18 about you know Kamala Harris reflecting on her ties with India and mm-hmm. talking about Kamala's love for good idli and how her mother instilled a love for oh good God, idli yeah. in her. Like we said, a lot of food metaphors because it's kind of like yeah. the only way I feel like people are able to crystallize their cultural identity is through mm-hmm. food. It's like the easiest yeah. way in India, um, and I th- easiest way in the US. Um, mm-hmm. To be able to define your Indian identity because um, langu- like language, te- look, a lot of diaspora kids don't know language, you know, like they don't mm-hmm. know the, they wouldn't know Tamil that well. Um, they wouldn't be as exposed to like um, Tamil films or Tamil stars, or, you know, anything beyond yeah. food. Um, so I think that's ultimately it because I think food is the one thing that lasts in diaspora cultures more yeah, than any other yeah. signifier of identity which is why food becomes such a thing um but i think it's really funny that indians like get so excited whenever someone of their background even if they've tried to distance themselves from their background their entire lives uh, mm-hmm. comes to the forefront and then indians think that it's a sign of like india making it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no definitely i think like even within the food metaphors it's it's such a like it's such a conduit for like whatever Tam brand Bram like supremacy or culture is because like in this Mindy Kaling video 
they talk for like maybe a minute about like how South Indians are all vegetarians <laughs> and like how Mindy Kaling grew up in this good Hindu vegetarian household and like I think it's so interesting that that's the conduit that people relate to the most and yeah what you said is so right like they they have like isolation from the language and like food is like the only thing that they can turn to so it results in these terribly cringy like food metaphors and like uh yeah like tweets like and yeah like, and also yeah. like everyone knows that the best south indian food is non-vegetarian mm-hmm, exactly <laughs> um google the song chicken 65 by wilbur sagunaraj <laughs> yeah um but uh yeah look um the indian media like goes into these like rhapsodies of like excitement or whatever like mm-hmm. whenever an Indian does anything in the US it's like wow there's a congressional hearing on insider trading on trading and a former Merrill Lynch executive Subramaniam might be behind bars like let's mm-hmm. go to the village he's from in Tamil Nadu and interview all the people <laughs> who were there when he was born like it's just yeah. it's just really obsessive um, um, but it feeds yeah. into this myth that like if if Tamrams weren't forced out of India because right. socialism and identity politics and they could be achieving their greatness here um, yeah i yeah i read that like um indian reporters were outside like kamala harris's like whatever grandfather's house um they were just i don't know what they were filming just the house but totally they're they're like obsessed when like a uh, tambram makes it in, in the u.s they're just that's all they cover and like it's it's quite bizarre my thesis for like why people are so obsessed with her indian identity is because i feel like you have to keep repeating that she's indian for anyone to track that she's indian because that's the only mm-hmm. way you're going to track that she's indian because she's really done so much to distance herself from that and it's kind of yeah. this very recent only since like the presidential candidacy that she's even talked about being indian till then yeah. i feel like under the obama era it was all about being african american one thing i do want to talk about is like the um the people who are recoiling hap- uh, at this um kamla like pandering to her indianness is like um obviously like people like us who are to the left of kamla but also mm-hmm. hindutva twitter is getting mm-hmm. really annoyed um and it's basically because they think that she's not indian enough mm-hmm. and they have like called out a lot of her lies um because you know how she presents that her grandfather was like right. part of the independence movement so a lot of um center right you know hindutva um or like just straight up hindutva publications uh are doing a lot of like kamla harris is a liar Mm-hmm. type fact checking where they like her father and then you know Kamala Harris is like oh her grandfather had a post in India that was equivalent to the secretary of state and they're like no he was just like a middling bureaucrat yeah yeah um, i think in totally. the british era like um and yeah, uh, yeah. i think it yeah. totally ranges from like people who are so excited that she lived in besanagar and like to like li- literally like like racist hindutva like so much anti blackness of like her not being indian enough but like saying the most ridiculous things um but i mean like i think that yeah it's interesting because i feel like from the articles like um they really like have dissected her grandfather's like post <laughs> yeah and like yeah he probably was just like a civil servant um 
which is so interesting. No, it's really it's really funny that they do that. And also there was this mm-hmm. one article in which um, there was a, this really funny description of the whole Kamala Harris Mindy Kaling video. Um, mm-hmm. So I just have to read this out. It's from yeah, the Live Mint. It's from a Live Mint article by Sandeepan Deb, who is the founder of Swarajya Magazine, which is like a center-right oh publication. But mm-hmm. um, he writes, other than her mother. Harris appears to have spoken little about her Indian roots, except on two occasions. One, when her campaign for Democratic Party presidential nominee was collapsing, and she cooked a masala dosa with Indian-American actor Mindy Kaling. Cynics construed this as a last-ditch effort to raise funds from rich Indian-Americans since her campaign had run out of cash. Are you stressed for making Indian food? Oh my god, you do have a taste just... Oh my, you have no idea. This is how my mother kept all of her stuff. This is so funny. I told my dad, I was like bringing over the stuff from the store. He's like, obviously I put them in Taster's Choice. But this literally was how my mother kept all of this stuff. It's so funny. What is that? Do they tell each other? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I can't. Yeah. This stupid video. (laughs) Yeah. They're seeing Um, it like a policy move. I mean, I'm sure it's like, I mean, it's definitely like an identity politics move, but it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. I, and I think I think a lot of this, I mean, which is I think our critique in general of like why we have so many problems with identity being foregrounded, is because mm-hmm. I think that she uses these potpourri of identities that she possesses to shield herself from criticism for what she's actually done in her career, because even at a like, even when when people who support Kamala Harris talk about her, they never talk about any of the good that she's done in her career as mm. a politician or as an attorney general. Like, they, I mean, you know, they never talk about anything good that she's done. It always mm-hmm. comes down to her identity, her upbringing. It's funny that that has become grounds for, like, why she's a good politician and not so much. Like, even the people who support her, I, like, what do they say about her? Um, her achievements yeah, I, you know I think in, it's in, I think it's yeah very classically like they, they'll they take whatever like liberal politicians whatever they tweet like whatever statements they make but they don't actually delve into like their policy or like the things that they've done in the past that are so harmful um, to especially like black communities like they never delve into those yeah, um, so let's, I just wanted to cover that a little because I think that um, Indians are now seeing Kamala Harris being talked about a lot, but they aren't able to, I don't think there's any Indian media that's talking about the problems in her career or like why people are mm-hmm. opposed to her. So I think it would be great um, to sort of do a little primer on that, um, to talk mm-hmm. about her career as a district, as a public prosecutor um, yeah. uh, for Calif- in California. Um, up until like um, her being a senator, like a U.S. senator, and just the main key points on like what she's done that we have such so many issues with. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So um, yeah. So I think one thing that's always happened with Kamala is that she's been called the female Obama. That's something you see come mm-hmm. up a lot, and that's how you that's how she's even modeled her image. Um, mm-hmm. To be the female Obama, and she really came up in the Obama years and was noticed then um, mm-hmm. because she lobbied for him so hard in uh, 2008. Um, but she's kind of, in many ways, emulated his approach to politics, 
where mm-hmm. she tries to come off as like charming and tries to make people who are progressive believe that she's their friend and she'll do something that's like superficial or you know like um customary in terms of giving a nod to the left or to progressives but then things that she does in things that she actually does like her implementation um mm-hmm. or her execution will always avoid um structural change or anything that could be substantive a uh, mm-hmm. substantive victory for progressive causes um and her yeah. career has always sort of paired these two things which is very similar to how i think people critique obama as well um yeah yeah so yeah. you want to get a bit into criminal justice and like yeah um yeah yeah so i mean i think kamala harris is like on the left obviously she's um she's like known and recognized as like a very carceral um like prosecutor but like her um her legacy has also been extremely harmful and carceral so i think she's she's constantly touted that instead of being tough on crime she wants to be smart on crime but we know that that's like that's code for the same thing like there's no such thing as being smart on crime when crime itself is um like an extremely white supremacist um racialized concept so while she was DA, you know, the felony conviction rate rose from like 52 to 67% in 3 years. Um she's constantly defended California's like three strike law. Um she I think she urged voters to reject Prop 66, which was a ballot initiative which would have reformed the harsh law um by making only like serious or violent felonies trigger life sentences so like in, in the beginning of her career she was seen as this very progressive uh prosecutor but like if you really dig into her uh policy and like the things she's done she's constantly defended like more carceral um uh like policies um and i think one of the most damning and like kind of disgusting parts of her career is is when she um and acted like an anti-truancy law which put basically parents of like truant children like children who um like didn't show up to class or were late um they she put their parents in jail which is or just kind of insane them like $2000 yeah. yeah it's just it's yeah it's just this extremely um it's kind of like a thought it's yeah, like it's like no, something it's much. like and it's so damn ram of her Mhm. <laughs> the Chandram yeah. jumped out. <laughs> totally. And and you know she's like extremely harmful to like um she wants like blocked a transgender inmate's request for gender reassignment surgery. Um and she's extremely hostile to sex workers and um you know she's always mocked like um abolitionist movements and I think it's especially interesting that you know she was nominated VP like amongst this huge push to defund and abolish the police because it just shows how much of a joke electoral politics is is that like it'll never it'll always pander to identity and like things that um are not backed up by like material realities so i think yeah she has an extremely harmful like cur- like career and um yeah not to mention she's like a in like she's an extremely zionist like candidate and and has always defended israel so i think you know her imperialist side is a whole other 
uh, thing we could get into, but yeah. No, I mean, I think the reason why she's such an attractive candidate for the Democrats is precisely because she is a cop. And you know mm-hmm. how Trump is always like, Trump tried to position himself as like a law and order candidate. Like, yeah. he'd be someone who'd come and like, make, when he came in, you know, the Mexicans would be out, the terrorists would be scared, mm-hmm. um, you know, order would be restored in the American streets. Um, and she kind of represents that as well, because so much of her career seems to have been about... Um, her thoughts on policing on you know mm-hmm. like you said like a smart approach to uh, a smart a smart approach on crime um so she in many ways is kind of like the the cop who mm-hmm. uh, democrats can rely on because actually like i feel like she plays this double thing where like her identity as a not identity but her profession as a cop or like a prosecutor um would help assuage a lot of fears around chaos and like um in the american streets as a result of the protests um Mm -hmm. and then her identity as like a black woman or an immigrant woman would help people feel like okay like she's going to be pro the protesters so it's like she Mm -hmm. can play both sides of this whenever she needs to and that i think is the appeal of someone like kamala harris for the democratic party a party that like stands for nothing you know Um, yeah no it's completely you know like uh yeah just extremely extremely violent and destructive party and like you know she's the perfect candidate to as you said like assuage all these fears and like try to they're literally propagandizing people into thinking they're going the right way yeah I mean and I think her legacy the more that I look through it is peppered with these instances of like when she in her speeches purports to like be for a progressive cause Mm -hmm. and when it comes down to it she backpedals through Mm -hmm. a mix of like through a a, like a a mix of like bureaucratic processes um Mm -hmm. and she hides behind those processes to be like oh like it wasn't in my control or like I couldn't actually do anything or like I supported this bill but that that bill it just seems like a repeat uh, aspect of her career where she's kind of presented herself as the victim of bureaucratic processes um Mm -hmm. and like how certain things weren't in her control so one thing um oh one thing I also want to talk about about Kamala is that I've noticed that whenever someone corners her or asks her like an uncomfortable question she Mm -hmm. starts laughing and like tries (laughs) to make the other person feel like they're crazy for asking her that question how do you go from being such a passionate opponent on such bedrock principles for you and and now you guys seem to be pals. It was a debate. <laughs> Not everybody landed punches like you did, though. It I was mean. a debate. <laughs> so you don't mean it. It was a debate that the whole reason, literally, it was a debate. It was called a debate. Everyone I understand. Travel to the debate. There were journalists there covering the debate. And I'm like, wow, she's that. Isn't that like? what people would get really mad about like they say like isn't that like americans would be like oh my god that's gaslighting mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no definitely i think that's i mean it's just another form it's like a more polite form of gaslighting or whatever you want to call it yeah like Com- you're crazy yeah. for asking me this question about why i'm not consistent <laughs> yeah. ha 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 like she does yeah, that a lot and i think um yeah she does that like there was one like i don't know if it was a ted talk but it was something along those lines where 
she has she like mocks she's she 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 like mocked activists and that who were um like calling for more schools and less jails and like no jails um and she was literally like mocking them and and like like mocking their activism and like them on the streets and I think like yeah she totally has that that way of like pandering through her politeness or like that sort of um just her temperament and the mechanism of her temperament to do that um yeah yeah it's like it's it, it it's very like obama type obama was always trying to play it cool and mm-hmm. i think she always tries to play it nonchalant i don't know i feel yeah. like that's something it's 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 a thing it's a very like curated public image um mm-hmm. and i just like i just want to get into now a little bit about like her the way that she frames her own life now mm-hmm. now that she's you know since 2018 which is when she started you know lobbying for herself as a presidential candidate also she was extremely like unsuccessful mm-hmm. as a presidential yeah. candidate right for the democratic party like wasn't yeah. she like the first to drop out um yeah definitely and i think it's i don't know i i find this you know the the i always like think about how crazy this is like the farce of democracy that like she was on stage um basically like telling joe biden how racist he was um for like supporting segregation and like the the fact that you know like politics is such a game for people that they just switch around and can openly become a vice vice president nominee for the same candidate that um on stage you know a few months ago she was she was calling a segregationist is kind of crazy to me like it's it blows my mind how much of a game and like how much of like a facade that voting and like i don't know electoral politics is um so yeah it's definitely like just that whole evolution is kind of insane to me yeah um and i think it i think we should i i'm really interested in the way that kamala harris and her team have crafted her journey and identity um for this purpose so she can kind of sidestep being held accountable to anything um mm-hmm. and um she released this book right before she, i think to test the waters and to frame her own legacy called the truths we hold which was mm-hmm. a it's like a memoir um and from what i understand the book seems like a memoir but in actuality it's actually um kamala harris trying trying to craft an image of her self um and it isn't an like an honest it isn't um like an honest book about like trials and tribulations um as much as it is her trying to craft her identity for people and like it basically is what she wants us to know about her rather than what she actually is or who she mm-hmm. actually is um and yeah like i really she talks in that about her late mother shamila um a mm-hmm. breast cancer researcher who immigrated to the us at the age of 19 um who taught her and her younger sister to strive for excellence and lift others up she presents herself as someone who is like the culmination of generations of women who fought for justice um you know like by kind of saying that this is in her blood to fight um and how her mother raised her to be a proud strong black woman um mm-hmm. so i think like her grandfather's role or in all of this is really interesting and that's what i want to talk to you about because she's always talking about besant nagar and going mm-hmm. on walks 
you know, on the beach with her <laughs> grandfather. She just did this video where she talks about how her grandfather would take her on walks and regale her with stories about the independence <laughs> movement. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's so funny because I, uh, like, for a decade I lived like literally five minutes away from Besantnagar, and I would go there very often. And it's just funny because like. I feel like that whole story, <laughs> like, what's the likelihood of, I don't know, like, every time you and your grandfather go for a walk on Besantnagar Beach, he's talking about the heroes that were responsible for the birth of the world's biggest democracy. It just, <laughs> it seems like such a formulaic thing to come up with, um, you know, just to to recall her past. Um, and that's, you know, verbatim, like, what she said he said. Um, and it just seems like, uh, you know, like she, she uses that to talk about, um, her deep, the deep influence of the Indian heritage on her. So I think it's just, you know, that's another thing that, um, I'm sure they went on walks, but like, is that really what he said? You know, it's kind of these, these stories that are too, too crafted to be real, (laughs) So I'm not sure. My grandparents were phenomenal. We would go back to India like every other year. My grandfather fought for and was a defender of the freedom of India. When I was a young girl, being the eldest grandchild, my grandfather would take me on his morning walk. All of his buddies who also were great leaders, and they would talk about the importance of fighting for a democracy and the importance of fighting for civil rights and that people would be treated equally regardless of where they were born or the circumstances. Yeah, and in this one video, I think she even said that um, all these great leaders that her grandfather knew would accompany them on walks mm-hmm. um, around Besantnagar. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, which great leaders? Like, the treasurer of the housing yeah. society? Like, <laughs> like who is... Like, who is joining you on these walks? Um, Like, it's it's just, it's so bizarre when when you look at it from the, to the prison of someone who's actually lived in India and Mm -hmm. is able to sort of immediately recognize the artifice in what she's saying. And just a little bit about her grandfather, Gopalan. I mean, she presents him to be simultaneously someone who is, like, a very, like, a highly accomplished, like, um foreign secretary, um, foreign civil servant, um, but, and then also just, like, um, someone who was, uh, fought for justice in his entire life, and, Mm -hmm. you know, was, uh, fought for the independence movement, both seems, so, both seem exaggerated, like, her grandfather was always just a bureaucrat, um, Mm -hmm. in the British government, um, and the, sort of, the pinnacle of his career was when he was sent to, Zambia um, mm-hmm. to help manage uh, the to help manage an influx of refugees from Rhodesia, which is present day Zimbabwe. Like mm-hmm. so, his like his role was to basically help a country move from colonial to post colonial. Yeah, sex statehood, and mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm sure that it was like a really important thing, and I'm sure that it was in like it was. An influ- like uh, a, a, a memory for her to like go to um, Zambia and like visit her grandfather but like the way that she frames it is so like oh like this journey of his has played a direct role in her journey um, mm-hmm. and it has informed her and guided her throughout her life 
um, and all of that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it's, you know, it's extremely convenient that, like, she brings up, you know, her grandfather talking to her about the birth of the world's biggest democracy, but she truly has not at all spoken up or, like, made it a policy decision of hers to talk about, like, Modi and, and Hindutva and, like, Hindu fascism that's currently happening and that that's, like, revealing the farce of Indian democracy, so... Yeah, and she never just, will. Like, yeah. She never, yeah, she never, like, will. this is... She never... This is... I mean, she knows she has to uh, appeal to a base of Indians who are Modi supporters. Like, totally, everyone yeah. wants that howdy Modi, Modi crowd, you know, like... Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I mean... Yeah. I think um, that another thing is that she, um, con- not maybe not she, but um, a lot of like media outlets will talk about how progressive her grandfather is for letting her mother like go to the US to study. Um, and rather than like that being a product of like caste and class mobility to like even immigrate um, and so I think that that's like another thing, like even Indian um, media outlets will talk about how like progressive it is to send his daughter to Berkeley. Um, yeah, so I think that's also just kind of funny, that that whole narrative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, because it has to be prevent- presented as a narrative of struggle, which I, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was for her mother at 19. It was like difficult yeah. for her. Um, but you can't take anything away from that narrative of yeah. struggle. Um, to suggest mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, this is something that's missing from the immigration debate for a certain class of Indians in the US or in the West in general, like talking mm-hmm. about the be- like the mobility, um, the privilege of mobility to be able to go to these countries and establish networks of support. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just like an overall like homogenizing of the immigrant struggle when it's so it's so it's it's like so structurally complex within whatever the immigrant struggle is like you know Indian Tambran immigrants like they're extremely privileged compared to other immigrants um and just like the manner in which they were able to come to the country uh yeah so it's it's just interesting in that way yeah um and I think it's interesting that she talks about I mean, she's her in her career. She has leaned a lot into being like an African American woman. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the Obama year. She would share a lot of like African American political, like women, African American women in politics, kind of like caucuses or groups. And then she would also um, she went to Howard University, which is a historically black college. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, which is fine. That's up to her own sort of like that's that's up to her. But um. But, like, one thing that she hasn't spoken much about is her Jamaican father. Yeah. And I think a lot of that mm-hmm. has to do... I mean, it, it, there, there, I think there are a mix of reasons why. Um, but the first... I think one of the reasons is that her father uh, and her mother separated or, like, divorced when she was around 10 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And um, since then, her mother got sole custody and maybe she, like, saw less of her father and he had less of an influence. I think that's how it's presented because you always hear of Kamala being raised by, like, a single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very little talk about the father. And I think another reason is why it's because the father is still alive and he can contradict a lot of the things Kamala's talking yeah. about. 
Yeah. Um, saying that she can get away with with the mother's side, she can't get away with the father's side, and he's even now said that he wants not like he loves his daughter too much to mm-hmm. get involved with any of the politics stuff because he's mm-hmm. like I I he's like I know I'm going to have problems with this, so I'm just going to stay away. <laughs> um, but let's talk about her father because he's a really fascinating figure in his own right, yeah. and I kind of feel bad with the way that he's. Um, the way that he's talked about as this like absent father, which I feel like mm-hmm. is a racist framing against like like deadbeat yeah. black dads, mm-hmm. um, which is something he's spoken up about. Um, but yeah, yeah, like let's just talk a little bit about like the father and who he is. He's Donald Harris. Um, right. He's emigrated yeah. to the U.S. from Jamaica. He's an economist. Um, he's yeah, had a very so- accomplished career. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's interesting because I, I guess, like, we will never know, like, the reason her parents divorced and, like, what happened there. But I think that the the her father's a very interesting figure, as you said. You know, he was a Jamaican Marxist professor at Stanford, and he wrote a lot of very, like, extremely, I don't, I don't know if they were, like, seminal necessarily, but they were very, very... Um, influential works uh just about um so let's see so one of one of his pieces was called capital accumulation and income distribution um he wrote another one called the black ghetto as a as colony a theoretical critique another one called capitalist exploitation and black labor some conceptual issues um so i think that it's interesting because like i i think there's a very big difference between like an activist and a professor, like someone who is um, in the ivory tower, even if the content of their work is like uh, similar in terms of like their Marxist leanings. Um, so I think it's interesting because a lot of his work is very much in contradiction with like Kamala Harris's like whole career as a prosecutor and, you know, yeah. it, her rejection, I'm sure her rejection of, like Marxism or socialism or or communism while her father has written like profusely about this. And I think it's really also just interesting that he seems to have had a career defined by academic rigor. Um, Mm -hmm. And he would be against a lot of of the ID politics stuff that she wields because he explicitly uh, like critiques that in his Mm -hmm. writing. It was just sort of talking about the importance of remaining, um, like theoretically sound and for being able to grapple with all of the different like being able to grapple with the words that we are using and not using words like exploitation in a throwaway Mm. manner to understand that exploitation is a material relation um you know it's a labor relation um so he was really bringing like even i think he was interested in like black studies and black politics and black radical politics but a lot of his approach seems to be against sloganeering against politicking mm-hmm. and really drawing things back to um the to like to framework of, like academic rigor yeah, yeah and through like uh, he's like a he's a very close reading scholar of marx like he really mm-hmm. integrates marx totally. into his writing um and i think that i think that's what's interesting is that he seems in his writing across the board to be against conflations to be against metaphors to be against um using things without understanding what they mean and it's a really interesting approach in an era we live in on twitter where people use the word intersectionality when they really just mean at the intersection of 
you know mm-hmm. like they confuse the word intersection and intersectionality all the time and we see these theoretical terms being bandied about in these really general yeah. ways which is something people like kamala benefit from they benefit yeah. from things being derooted and deracinated from what they actually should mean she benefits from that you know yeah um yeah because none of her policy actually reflects that um like reflects any of the concepts that people just throw around um that are rooted in like a uh, historical and like material rigor of like mm-hmm. conditions and study yeah um i think that she yeah and i think it's i think one thing that he has like very steadfastly said that he's against is when she went on she did an interview you're the one who like told me about this but she did an interview yeah. where she joked about being um like joked about like someone asked her um have you smoked marijuana like if you ever smoked weed and she's like laughed and she's like ha 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 what do you think man i'm from jamaica um yeah, which and, is you know, like I'm, so it's i mean it's so cuz she's definitely locked like hundreds if not thousands of like black people up for smoking pot and it's just like kind of a wicked irony um but yeah as you were saying like her father <laughs> commented on that um, yeah what did he say um, he said so i think it goes back to what you were saying about like he doesn't want identity to be something that like is pandered to like he wants it to be rooted in like material conditions so like he said my dear departed grandmothers um whose extraordinary legacy i described in a recent essay on my website as well as my deceased parents must be turning in their grave right now to see their family's name reputation and proud jamaican identity being connected in any way jokingly or not with the fraudulent stereotype of a pot smoking joy seeker and in pursuit of identity politics speaking for myself and my immediate jamaican family we wish to categorically disassociate ourselves from this travesty so it's oh. quite an intense statement <laughs> yeah he's a very intense he's a very firm even in his writing he comes across across as very firm mm-hmm. um but i i actually i think that um the he's written this really I just found this essay he wrote about um being a Jamaican father and he mm-hmm. nods to these two women in his life his two grandmothers and talks about what they've taught him and the legacy of them that he wants to carry on to his daughters and mm-hmm. it just seemed like such a beautifully realized essay show that he was a sensitive man who is really yeah. invested in raising his daughters the right way who seems to have a great love for maternal figures who really loves being Jamaican and wants to do whatever he can to help the country. Totally. Um, yeah, and if you and look at all his books, he dedicates them to his daughters, like Kamala yeah. and Maya, I think. Yeah. So it just makes me sad that he's framed as this absent father when he seems to have worked so hard to inculcate a pride in their Jamaican identity, like social awareness, mm-hmm. um, like... a love for justice like he has never talked about when kamala invokes like justice you know um the, the love for justice that her mother and her mother's family instilled in her it's like the father has written out of that legacy and it kind of just makes me sad because he talks mm-hmm. about how um when he and his wife got divorced the like the state of california thought that um fathers couldn't handle parenting especially not like a black father which is why he wasn't mm. given custody of his daughters and i think that was a really like difficult moment in his life and it just 
Yeah, and I and I kind of feel like the campaign does feed into this image of him by constantly talking about the mother and her single being a single mother, mm-hmm. and not talking at all about the contributions of the father. And I understand this yeah. is like a personal relationship, but it just it just makes me sad because he doesn't seem like like I don't know. He's just writing in his writing. He comes across as very sincere and very sensitive. Right, right, and I think yeah, it's just it's. You know, I think there's a lot of irony in the way that um, he's written about these things, like from very much a, a viewpoint of um, like black liberation through a Marxist lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like his daughter is carrying is not you know is not carrying on that legacy or or carrying along those um, ideological and moral frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think overall, um, you know, I think the reason why... Also, like, don't you think the South Asian diaspora would be less enthused about Kamala Harris if she if she was like, oh, I'm a Jamaican, I'm also Jamaican, you know? Because they yeah. kind of want that in a weird way, like, South Asians are so, like, weird about identity. They kind of want, like, they want her to be that that authentic whatever their idea of authentic Indian is yeah, just because like they purity, because for their yeah, own yeah just, for their own like for their own um for their own benefit so that they can also yeah. like get some kind of like identity points through her um yeah so I feel like she wouldn't want to tamper with that but I think it's a really interesting career she's had of like at any point whatever she wants to frame herself as she can frame herself as because for a really mm-hmm. long time she never really spoke about being Indian it wasn't useful yeah. for her politically. Um, but now the Indian diaspora is, if not um, demographically, like the numbers aren't that great, but they are a very wealthy group of mm-hmm. people. Um, yeah, especially like whatever, her Tam brand, brand community. Uh, yeah, yeah, especially them. Um, and it's just, you know, she's, I don't think even she'll tap into these identity politics and like signifiers of identity, but will never actually get like politically into unpacking um, structural oppression of, you know, caste in, in the US or India. So yeah, it's definitely like a opportunistic type of picking of identity on her South Asian side. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think this is the kind of thing that America rewards as well. I mean, this is... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even Joe Biden saying that he was definitely going to get like a woman VP. Um, yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's so, it's, it's so, it's so gaudy and like blatant and like, like everything about it is like, so it, it, it's really disgusting. Um, yeah. 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 Truly um, disgusting. Like I just, yeah, it's, it's so hard to see this type of pandering, um, especially to people who are experiencing like so much grief and and so much like collective grief that it's it's very disgusting as you were saying and and like yeah it just shows that this is all a game to them like it's not you know these people don't really care about people's material conditions and like the fact that people are suffering they don't care about that um it's all it's all just a game which which is just extremely fucked up just wanted to ask you you know before we end about um what do you think Kamala Harris's 
a VP, like appointmentship or whatever represents about, uh, represents in the journey of the South Asian diaspora in the, in the US. Like, what do you think it says about that? Yeah, I think like, as I was saying previously, I think it's like bolstered these two sorts of diaspora identities, which is um, like one, it's, a, it's just like an extreme glorification of uh, like her caste identity through what, what people call as like South Indian culture. And I think that that's, you know, people are very, very excited, you know, that there's a South Indian VP nominee. But, like, I think if you dig much deeper, it represents something more insidious about um, the South Asian diaspora, and, like, specifically, like, the Tambram, whatever diaspora in the U.S. Um, so I think it's bolstered that type of identity, but I also think it has bolstered this other type of identity, which is you know, probably, you know, a, um, a more far-right, like, condemnation of, of Kamala Harris because she is half-Black and, you know, from, from like, Hindutva people who are very focused on, like, purity. So I think it's, it's interesting. Like, I think her identity as um, a South Asian and a Black woman, like, has really you know, made the diaspora gone wild, like, <laughs> as as your podcast says, um, which yeah. is, you know, you know, it's quite, let's see what will happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that the people think that, you know, South, um, I think Indians, especially, um, have always sort of lamented the, um, I think Indians in the in the West are very interested in a consolidation of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they've achieved that power on like economic or financial front, like they're very extremely wealthy. From what I understand, they're the wealthiest ethnic group after like Jews um, in, in the US. Um, and they really want to consolidate that into political power. Mm-hmm. And they are really insecure about the fact that they are so like, like demographically, they're not an... Um, uh, like an enviable minority because they're not as many of them compared to say Muslims who mm-hmm. they see as more unified or but um but I think so I think they see this really as like their ascendance in American politics as the fact that now like people will care about Indian issues mm-hmm. and I think that is going to include and I think through that there's going to be a lot of shoehorning of like really sort of right wing like um through just sort of Hindus talking about you know um through these like soft cultural issues like talking about um you know like this whole tamram thing or consolidating a certain idea of hindu culture or yeah. basically creating like a very uniform type of hindu identity in the western imagination i think mm-hmm. that is going to be successful through someone like kamala coming in and yeah no i i mean like i i, I haven't really checked what she's what her policy towards I, I don't know if she even has any like what her like solid policy or comments have been towards India but like based on her like love for Israel like I can totally guess that it, it's gonna be like it's just gonna be a shit show <laughs> yeah thank you for coming on board I know this is this was a, hopefully we had fun talking about the insane responses to um her nomination what is she appointment whatever whatever she is um presumptive VP whatever but um thank you so yeah. much I, yeah thank you so much and it was so course, much fun having yeah, you yeah thank here. you so much for inviting me I had a lot of fun <laughs>